Thank you, Alex and worship team. Good morning, everyone. It looks like my, my attempts to get people to sit in the front rows were to no avail. Last week, you know, there might be something under the seats. You never know. I'm calling it, though. Only if you're sitting in the front row right now can you get whatever's under the seats that aren't there. There's nothing there today. But you never know. You never know. Okay, I'm just saying. All right. Well, hey, next week, we're going to be back in 1 Peter. I haven't forgotten, though I have gotten rusty on my memorization. I am going to be working on that this week. But God willing, we'll finish 1 Peter in early March. And then I plan to preach through the book of Acts. See what the Holy Spirit did through the early church and what the Holy Spirit wants to do through us. But today, I want to take you to Acts chapter 17 and to a passage of scripture that I've been reading a lot and God has really impressed on my heart uh, some significant things. I, I'm gonna, I want you to focus your attention today on this striking episode in Paul's life when he was in Athens on Mars Hill. Now this is the Sunday after Christmas, so I guess I should say Merry Sunday after Christmas. Is that right? And I hope, I hope you got everything you wanted. No, actually, I, I hope you didn't. <laughs> I hope you, you got some character building. Um, but I want to talk to you today about what God wants in your life. If you've ever found yourself easily provoked to anger, and by the way, I am an Italian, Irish, English, Scot. So I can, I can get there. Any of you, can you relate that you might have a bit of a, a, bit of a propensity to be provoked? Anyone? I see one hand in the back. Two, three, four, five. Oh, yes, the hands are shooting up all around. If you ever find yourself frustrated by, by your responses and your tendency to take things personal with people, or if you really want a fruitful life and ministry for the Lord, but you find yourself frustrated because you find that you're falling down more times than you're making progress, and if so, let me just say, this might be the most important sermon you hear all year because it's about everything you do with everyone. It's about your life. It's about what God wants in your life, and it's about how God wants to turn the provocation of your spirit your tendency to be angered and then, and then speak out about it. He wants to turn that into proclamation of the gospel. He wants you to get provoked for the right reasons for righteous results. Now, we're going to read Acts 17 in just a moment, but let's just play what if for a moment, okay? Can we play what if? You know how that goes? You say, what if? And you kind of just go, wow, wouldn't that be awesome? What if in your household, even with your spouse, your kids, your, your brothers and sisters, whoever lives in your household, what if within your friendship circles or even in the marketplace, school, your sports team you play on, your neighborhood engagements, or, or anywhere God sends you, 
that you were able to, to process things in such a way as a Christian where you would stop before you lash out as your heart is provoked and that you would you'd say, God, how do you want to use this redemptively? How do you want to use this for the gospel? What if God was able to take that prayer and that, that aspiration, that desire, and, and transform your marriage, your parenting, your brother and sisterhood, your, your work engagements, your, your vacations, your missions trips, everything. It's very easy for us to say, well, hey, Paul was on a missions trip. He was on his best behavior. Actually, Paul never tells us, and the Holy Spirit never tells us, that he's on a missions trip. We named that. He was doing life. This was his life. And it was the outflow of, of Christ in him. And everyone isn't gifted like Paul. Everyone isn't called to the same place. You may never find yourself, you probably will never find yourself on Mars Hill. But Paul never found himself in Orange or Tustin or Santa Ana or Yorba Linda or Westminster or Costa Mesa or any of the other places that we operate. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. If you're able, I'd like you to stand with me out of honoring uh, God and his word. I'm going to read Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. This is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place 
that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege to be here to hear your word. Thank you that it is perfect and that you are totally righteous. And I ask, Lord, that you would teach us and comfort us and challenge us and change us as you desire. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Something I have found myself saying to my children often is you can't always get what you want. But God always gets what he wants. But sometimes your plans change. Sometimes things don't work out the way you thought they would. And unmet expectations are frustrating. They are disappointing. But always God has better things in mind. In Acts chapter 17, Paul finds himself in Athens. His plans have changed. Athens was not on the itinerary for this trip. And he's waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy, and he has some time to kill. I don't know about you, but if I was on a trip, let's just say to South America, and I'm with Brian and Doug, and, and we're going to, I don't know, let's just say Bolivia. And something happens where we have to change our plan and I have to go to another city. I would say, hey, I'll wait for you and then we'll do all the things we had planned. And it might be easy to say, wow, let's go, let's go shoot the breeze a little bit for a couple days. Let's go do some sightseeing. Let's see the sights. This is not what Paul did. Paul is on his second journey. He has gone from Thessalonica down to Berea, and now he's in Athens, but Athens wasn't part of the plan. What happened? Well, he was in Thessalonica. He is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He's preaching the gospel, preaching the cross. And some people listened, but others stirred things up, and the Jews did not like what he was saying, and so they started to persecute Paul. The brothers sent him to Berea, and in Berea he found some noble-minded people who searched the scriptures 
every time Paul spoke to make sure that what he was saying was accurate. But the people from Thessalonica that were agitating the crowds followed him to Berea and he was in danger and so he was sent down, he was sent to Athens. And he arrives there and he has already told Silas and Timothy, come quickly. And he's in Athens and he observes the city literally full of idols. It's, it's, it's provoking to his spirit. His heart is burdened. Well, what does he do about it? How does he redeem the time? How does God use this to further the gospel? Instead of considering this a three-day holiday and meeting his own needs, he looks around and he uses what he sees for gospel purposes. And I want us to see today what we can learn from this story. I want to go through these verses and make some comments and explain a few things and then look at some implications for our lives. Look at some applications. Look at some, make some observations about what this means for us in everywhere we, we live and move and have our being. How can this affect our marriage? How can this affect our parenting, our work, our school being a kid under your parents. Kids, you are going to be tempted probably today like you are every day to, to have your parents say something to you and you, you say something back that is disrespectful or that you don't want to do it. If you're married, you will be tempted today to be provoked by something that your spouse says because they know how to push the buttons and they know where the buttons are. If you are a parent You'll be tempted today to be provoked at your kids. And when you hit work tomorrow morning or whenever school gets back in session, you're going to be tempted to, to rebel or revolt against something you hear or is said. And so that what if, what if the, the tendency to angrily respond is turned into a chance to proclaim the gospel is, is on my heart as we're looking at this, and I just want you to know that the first thing you see here is, is provocation. His spirit was provoked within him. What does that mean? Was that like a different kind of provocation? No. He was tempted to be angry about it. It was disturbing to him. It was, it was burdening. He's come to Athens to escape persecution in Macedonia. This was not part of his original plan, and he would have from Macedonia, crossed the Adriatic and gone on to Italy and then to Rome. He has come to Athens, this, this great, really, you could say this once great city, because by the time that Paul had come to Athens, the city had long since lost his empire and its wealth. Probably no more than 10,000 people lived there at the time, but it was going on the glorious fumes of the past. It's temples, it's all the statues were dedicated to the worship of the Greek pantheon of gods. Its culture was thoroughly pagan. Athens boasted in its heyday to be the place of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. We're talking the heavyweight philosophers here. It was the cultural center of Greece. Again, at its height, it housed the most famous philosophers in history. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and, and the leaders of two prominent philosophies, Epicurus, the founder of Epicureanism, and Zeno, the founder of Stoicism. 
They were taught there too. In fact, those were the two competing philosophies of that day, Epicureanism and Stoicism. I don't think the rivalry was as bad as UCLA-USC, but it was pretty bad. Athens was this religious center of Greece. You could worship any idol known to man in Greece. Paul shows up in Athens and he lands in a city full of lost humanity. He's the only Christian in Athens. Can you imagine that? And in this place that was literally teeming full of idols, that literally means it was thick with idols. It was luxuriant with idols. It was like dense vegetation. There were so many idols. And his heart was provoked. The closest I think I've ever come to that is once when I was on a trip to Kathmandu, Nepal. And we went up to this, to this one, on this one hill where there were all these statues and little shrines and there were actually live men inside the shrines being worshipped as gods. And people were bringing offerings to them. And there was a river that was down below that people were bringing offerings to. And I remember looking around thinking, is anyone else bugged by this? It was a very oppressive scene. It, it, was, it was something that provoked my heart. Athens was pluralistic in its religion. Many gods, many goddesses that they were acknowledging. The political importance of the city was that it was free, but under Roman rule. It was this historic cradle of Greek civilization and culture. It was basically the premier university town of the empire. And Athens had been this crown jewel of a destination. And now it is a shadow of its former self, but it is still proud and arrogant as ever. They boasted of their philosophers. They were a hot spot of the quasi-intellectual. And it had an empty soul. This was an empty city full of magnificent art and statues and buildings and ideas and they didn't have the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. So Paul shows up to this city, and everywhere he looks, every building had a statue to some god or goddess. His spirit was provoked within him. What did he do? Did he call them names? You put a sign up that says, turn or burn. Hey, Athenians, you're going to hell. What'd he do? What he did was verse 17 tells us he reasoned, he argued his case for the gospel in the synagogue first and foremost. That was what Paul did. When he'd go to a place, he'd go to the synagogue. That's where people believed the word of God. They took the Old Testament as the word of God. So he goes there. And he's with the Jews and he's reasoning about Jesus and the gospel and, and with devout people, people who, who sincerely wanted to, to worship God. They just didn't know that they were worshiping all these false gods. And he was in the marketplace every day, the, the agora, every day with those who happened to be there. There was no lack of people to talk to, no shortage of people to talk to in a busy place like Athens. city was now under Roman imperial rule. Their democratic rule was a relic of the past and 
This, this marketplace was full of altars and statues and temples all around. And it says in verse 18 that some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also spoke with him. They argued with him as well. Because you've got these two rival schools of philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Boil it down, and the Epicureans believed that pleasure was everything. Boil it down, and the Stoics believed that, that human reason was everything. The Epicureans believed that pleasure was the chief end of life. Epicurus held that pleasure was most worth, worth enjoying a life of tranquility free from pain. If you could just stay away from pain, if you could stay away from anything that would disturb you, if you could stay away from anxiety, then, then everything is well. Zeno founded Stoicism, took his name from the place where he taught, the colonnade, the painted Stoa. And his teaching was centered on living harmoniously with the universe, and he, he emphasized man's rational abilities to figure everything out on his own, individual self-sufficiency. So if you were an Epicurean, it was pleasure is the end-all, be-all of your life. If you were the Stoic, it was I can do this on my own. Doesn't sound so different than most people's philosophies of life today, right? Stoics had crazy thoughts of God. They, they were pantheistic materialists. They believed that God is in everything. A lot of people believe that today. They had no concept of sin. That error to them was nothing more than failing to achieve the ideal acting contrary to the laws of nature. They had no concept of offending the will of a holy, sovereign, good God. They believed it was just all up to fate, however things just turned out. They didn't believe in the afterlife. Epicureans believed that gods exist, but they're outside the realm of human affairs, and thus... They weren't interested in humanity. There's no reason to fear them, Epicureans would say. They also had no concept of sin. And Epicurean's idea was just avoid things that cause you pain and you'll be happy. Their ethics were that the chief end of human existence is not the glory of God, but to live as one with nature. It doesn't sound so different than many people's views today. And what were they saying about Paul as he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection? Well, they called him names. They said, what would this babbler wish to say? Now, you might say, well, you can call me a babbler. It doesn't offend me. It would have back then. It was a very bad name to be called. It, it stood first for birds that picked seeds off the ground, and then for people that just collected junk from any, any place they could find it. But then it came to be used as a person who was good for nothing. And literally what they were saying to Paul was, if you could think, what would you say? But you can't think, so you have nothing to say. That's what they were saying. Now, other people said, no, no, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. I think that'd be a, a great uh, fantasy football team name, don't you? Preacher of foreign divinities. Huh? Why would they think he's a preacher of foreign divinities? Well, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. They thought that he was preaching two gods, one named Jesus and one named Anastasis. And so they take Paul and they bring him to the Areopagus, which was this huge place to, to have a gathering. It would have had a, like, a lectern and place for people to gather. And they want to know what he's talking about. So he has this, an upgrade in, in his audience. It's going to be a big audience now. And he says, uh, we want to know the new teaching that you're presenting. Even though some were calling him names, others were saying he's a preacher of foreign divinities, they were open to hearing about it. In fact, it says in verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they want to know what he's talking about. One of their own writers, uh, Thucydides, wrote, you are the best people, Athenians, at being deceived by something new that is said. See, the problem was they didn't have discernment, and so they would just take new ideas and latch on to them. So they brought him to the Areopagus. That, that's literally the hill of Ayers, the god of war. The Romans identified Ayers with their god of war, Mars, which is why people know this as Mars Hill. He's on Mars Hill in Athens. The hill was adjacent to the Acropolis. There was a ravine separating the two. It was 370 feet high. Now there are no buildings on the site. But they say to him, we want to know what you're talking about. And so Paul takes advantage of this wonderful opportunity for the gospel and launches into a sermon. He crafts his message. I think the first thing we'll see here is that he crafts his message to communicate to the people. It's different from some of his other sermons, but he crafts it according to where they were, who they are. He knows who he's talking to. And it's a varied group with competing philosophies, but he notices that they do not have the answer to the most basic question of life. Who is God? And the reason he knows this is because as he was walking through the city, he found an altar that was dedicated to an unknown God. Now, why would someone make a temple or a altar to an unknown God? Because they don't know his name. But there's more. Especially, especially the Stoics, they were afraid of the gods. And so they figured if we put one up with kind of a generic label on it, then we're covered. Because what if we... There's so many gods, there's so many idols. What if we miss one? Then we're in big trouble. And so, so they have this, this, this placard or whatever is on it and says, to an unknown God. I observe the objects of your worship, he says. Men of Athens, he starts, I perceive. So he's perceived something. He's thought it through. He's provoked in his spirit, but instead of lashing out at them and calling them names like they called him, he thinks it through and, and wisely comes up with a way to, to basically hook them into listening to what he's about to say. So he gives them a compliment. Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious in every way. Literally, he says, you fear the gods. Literally, it's you're superstitious, which wouldn't have been bad to them. 
He says, I passed along and I saw the object of your worship and I found this altar to an unknown God. So what you worship as unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. He's not putting them down. They've already admitted they don't know. And what does he do when he evangelizes these, these pagans? He doesn't start with, hey, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus who died for your sins on the cross and repent and believe and you'll be saved. He doesn't say that. He starts with the character of God. He starts with God who made the world, the general revelation of God. Now, when he evangelized Jews, he started with the Old Testament. Here, he starts with creation. And he says, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it. Now, he has just set everything else aside and focused in on the one true God. God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made with hands. So all the temples they built... The real God doesn't live in those. Verse 25, he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So all the things they were trying to do were, were, were for nothing. He says, verse 25, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything, it's all from God. He's the creator, the sustainer. So, so the Stoic that thought that it all started and ended with them was wrong. Verse 26, he said, he made from one man, one man, from Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And he determined the allotted periods, the eras in which they would live, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So you live where you live, and you are who you are, because God made you who you are and put you where you live. Made you the kind of person you are, put you in the country you live, and he, he put the boundaries of the dwelling places. He determined the allotted periods of time people would live. And he's telling them this. And they're listening. They're going along, listening. And he even says that, that, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. It's, it's the idea of groping in the dark or a blind person walking and not knowing where they're going. And he's saying, you're, you're basically blind, but God has made it so that you might be able to find him. And then he says, but, but he's not far from any of us. So now he's talking about a God that created everything that isn't right there, but is right there and and then he uses some poetry he he doesn't just start where they're at but he engages them according to their culture and according to things they would know he says in him we we live and move and have our being this appears to be a quote from a poem attributed to epimenides here's how it goes they fashioned a tomb for thee O whole O holy and high one the cretans always liars evil beasts idle bellies but thou art not dead, thou livest forever and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. So he takes a poem that's written to a false god and basically applies it to the true God. And then he says, we are his offspring. He's quoting a Stoic philosopher who came not far from Tarsus. He came from um, Cilicia. And, and his name was Aretas. And he, and he basically had traveled to Athens, had learned his stoicism from Zeno, the founder of the philosophy, and, and he writes a poem about Zeus. Here's what he says. Let us begin with Zeus. Never, O men, let us leave him unmentioned. 
All the ways are full of Zeus and all the marketplaces of human beings. The sea is full of him, so are the harbors. In every way we have all to do with Zeus, for we are truly his offspring. And Paul co-ops that and says, no, you're the one true God's offspring. You're not Zeus's offspring. Verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that God is made out of gold and silver and stone like, like a lot of you think. And, and it's not formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul's talking to people that were superstitious and thought that they had made all their gods. So verse 30, he's getting to a conclusion. He says, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. He's, he's been patient with everyone. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You know who Paul said this to? People who didn't think they had any sins to repent of. If you're a believer, do you remember when you didn't think you had any sins to repent of? I can remember when I didn't think I had any sins to repent of. He says, God is calling you. He's commanding you. Pick up. Repent. Can you hear? He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. So he made the world by a man, Adam, and now he has fixed a day in the future. He's already marked it out. He knows the day where he is going to judge the world by another man, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given assurance of this fact because he's raised him from the dead. Now let me just say, before we get to, to their response, let me just say, God commands all people everywhere to repent. He will judge the world. He, Paul is not soft-peddling the demands of the gospel. He is being culturally sensitive, but he is preaching Jesus and, and repentance Faith in Christ and the resurrection. So everyone is supposed to repent of their sins. And God has fixed a day where he is going to judge the world in righteousness. And if you're not repenting, if you haven't repented, you're going to be judged. And that's going to be by a man, not the first Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not even using his name at this point. But we know he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We've already heard this. And by the way, everything he says fits in with the Old Testament teaching. God made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by hands. He doesn't need anything from the people he created. He is the source of breath. He's appointed the arrows for the nations, established national boundaries, desires people would seek him. He is not far away. He's overlooked ignorance. He calls people to repent. He will judge the world. He's appointed a man who will judge. That's Jesus. Let me just say this. If you're, if you're hearing this today and you say, you know what, I'm actually more of an Epicurean. I'm a pleasure seeker in life. Or I'm, I'm more of a Stoic. I'm, I think you can just do it all on your own. And by the way, Epicurean and Stoic philosophies are still around today very pervasive just with different names. Some people think they made it up. And it's, no, no, it's been around a long time. But you might say, I'm just a pleasure seeker, or I think it's all within me. And if that's you today, God is calling you to repent of your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him for eternal life and for forgiveness and to stop 
going with lies, pagan lies, and go with the gospel truth. You know what they say? Mockers will mock, haters will hate, and believers will believe. So what did Paul do? Well, he walks out of the Areopagus, but not after he hears these words of mocking and of, we'll hear you again. See, some of the people mocked. They laughed, they jeered, they, they didn't cheer. And some said, hmm, I wouldn't mind hearing some more of this. And so Paul leaves, verse 33, and then in verse 34, we read some pretty amazing news. Some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius the Areopagite. That means he was of a council of the Areopagus at one point. They made big decisions for the city of Athens. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul could have left and said, well, a lot of people called me names. A lot of people you know, laughed at me and, and rejected the message. Or he could just praise God and say, wow, Dionysius and Damaris and others came to Christ. He just, what did he do? He just left it up to God and kept doing the next thing that God gave him to do. So what you see with Paul here is that he was provoked in his spirit. And he perceived, he thought it through, and he perceived what was going on with the people and how he could use this for a gospel opportunity. And then he proclaimed boldly of Jesus and the resurrection. He proclaimed the gospel. Now we'll get back to that idea, the what if of, what if God could turn your provocation of spirit into, into an opportunity to proclaim the gospel? How things might change so that others will be blessed in Christ. Challenges come your way, and I think there's things you can do beforehand to prepare. I think you can do some things in the moment, and I think there's some things you can do afterwards, and I think we see it in how Paul dealt with this. How you can turn the temptation to get angry into an opportunity for the gospel. Every time you feel it welling up inside you to be able to stop and say, God, how might you use this for redemptive purposes for the gospel. Normal provocation usually trends towards pride, where we will be prideful and we will want to fight back. Righteous indignation, maybe, maybe insults, maybe judgment against other people. But what Paul shows us is this gracious, culturally sensitive presentation of biblical truth and he gives a heartfelt invitation and God produces spiritual fruit he calls them to repentance and some do so how how is it that God could use our situations for redemptive purposes rather for good rather than for evil how can you how can you escape without having anything to confess or repent of I mean, think about this. If you're married, how could you actually be provoked by your spouse and not, not do what you usually do? How can you come out of it rejoicing and praising God for everything he did? 
How is Paul able to do this? That's it's what I've been thinking through so much. Is, so what was it? What was it? He didn't just land in Athens and go, wow, uh, I'm such a great guy and I can do this. He wasn't Epicurean or Stoic in his philosophy of life. He was, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He was um, dependent on Jesus. So how was Paul not able to get sucked into the arguments, the name calling, and, and actually he was able to focus on the gospel? So I think what, what Paul, what was true about Paul, I think needs to be true about us, okay? So here's the first thing, the before thing, okay? Relentlessly pursue a growing relationship with Jesus and others. It will be the outflow of that relationship that God will use to bless other people. Think about what, what riles you up. Think about how often you feel yourself getting provoked, provoked to anger, to irritation, even to some kind of action or words towards other people. Some people are really short-fused. Other people have longer fuses. Um, but everyone at some time gets provoked, okay? What provokes your spirit? That's the question. Is it everything? Does everything provoke you? Does nothing provoke you? You know, there's no pulse of provocation. How about politics? Does politics provoke you? There's pet peeves about people or the way people talk or whatever. What drives you to your soapbox? Many Christians, by the way, many professing Christians aren't provoked by ungodliness because they swim in it so often. The good question to ask yourself is, do I find myself defending sin or championing righteousness? Do I defend ungodliness or do I champion righteousness? How do you have a growing relationship with Jesus and others? Because interesting, Paul is, is with Silas and Timothy, but just before this, he had this huge disagreement with Barnabas and they separate from each other. In chapter 15, we see it. And that's the same, by the way, provoked, same word, the sharp disagreement. Same word. What's going on here? How do you have this relationship with Jesus that's growing and interaction with other people? We don't see, by the way, Paul having anything to repent of in that situation with Barnabas. They just had a sharp disagreement and they decided to go elsewhere. So what is it? I think it's what was going on in Paul's life that we see from other places in the New Testament. He was big on the word of God. Paul said, to the Thessalonians, when you heard the word of God, you accepted it for what it really is, the word of God, not the word of man. The word of God that does its work in you who believe. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He was big on the word of God. Study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. I think that Paul had a growing relationship with God because he was so committed to the word of God. He said to the Ephesian elders, by the way, in Acts chapter 20, that they knew what he had done in his life. He says, you knew how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials that happened to me through plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, 
testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The reason he could declare it is because he knew it. You know, there was a poll done by Lifeway Research of Americans of how often they read their Bible. And it, it turns out that they own three po- Americans own 3.6 copies of the Bible each, print or otherwise, but only 33% read it every single day of the people that own those Bibles. There was another survey that showed that 88% of the people say they own a Bible and that the average household has 4.4 Bibles and that the majority of the people surveyed, 57%, only read their Bibles four times a year or less. And that the average is 26% of Americans read their Bible on a regular basis four or more times a week. I'm here to tell you, you cannot grow as a believer in Jesus without the word of God. And we have all these Bibles and we're not reading them. And we don't pray. And again, you could say, well, Paul was on a missions trip. Come on, that was, that was a missions trip. No, it was his life. And not everyone has the same life and gifting, but everyone has the same calling. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses everywhere. You're probably never going to find yourself on Mars Hill, like I said, in the middle of Athens, in a situation like Paul. But he never found himself on the 55 South either, or the 91 East, or in Anaheim, Yorba Linda, Tustin, or Orange. He never found himself around the water cooler in the bo- or in the boardroom or in the classroom being asked about his faith. Don't see any record of Paul being out on the playground or in the neighborhood, in your neighborhood where you live, being questioned about his beliefs. And I truly believe that if we can't live it where the rubber meets the road at home, we can't do it on a missions trip. The Word of God. Peter talks about this. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. And I talked about this when I preached on this recently, that you need to have an intense personal desire for the word of God and most of us don't wake up with this intense personal desire for the word of God we want breakfast or some of you want coffee right you addicts but I'm wondering how does a baby long for its mother's milk and why it's because it's the only thing the baby knows and the baby knows it needs that and so it cries for its mother's milk and, and, and God is saying, you need to be like that all your life with the word of God. And it's not about this wonderful feeling inside that you want something like I want garlic or olive oil or sardines. It's, it's this, that you know you are dependent on it. That you have to have it in order to live and grow. You gotta have the word of God every single day and not in a five-minute dose not one verse a day on a little calendar, but like reading it, absorbing it, and getting to know it. Look, I got rusty in the last couple of weeks not preaching through 1 Peter about memorizing 1 Peter. I got a lot of catch-up to do in this next week because I'm, I'm starting chapter four. And the, the end of chapter three is very hazy for me right now. I could piece it together. That's about it. it we, we, we leak, <laughs> 
We need the word of God all the time because we, it seeps away. And we need prayer. You know, God uses his word to correct and strengthen me and, and he gives me a heavenward perspective, but he also has been giving me a deeper awareness of how much I need to pray. Interesting, two people in this room right now have, have helped me on both these. Andrew McNeil said, hey, why don't we pray more as elders and pastors? So every Friday morning, we are in that spot right here at 6.30 in the morning praying for this church and, and to the ends of the earth. And God is doing things that never would have happened and, and he only knows if we ha- hadn't been on our knees before him. Ed Trenner, hey, when you hear about Paul showing up in Athens and making all these friends right away, does that not sound like Ed Trenner? The guy goes anywhere in the world and it's like, next thing you know, he's, he's preaching Jesus to people. Or you go to a coffee shop over here and meet somebody, next thing you know, they're riding bikes. Next thing you know, they're a Christian. And again, everyone doesn't have the same, the same gifting, but God wants us to be in these relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ that will spur us on to growth in Christ. The word of God, prayer, and accountable Christ-centered relationships. So I think we, we gotta have that. But let's just talk real briefly about this. What do you do during the moment? You are provoked, and you've got a body of work to work on. You've been in the word, you've been praying, you, you're with other believers, but you wanna say that thing so bad, and you wanna lash out, and you don't really wanna preach the gospel to your family, to your neighbor, to whoever it is. What do you do? Here it is. You resist the temptation to sin, you fight with yourself over that. How many times have I said stuff? I put myself, my foot in my mouth so often, and, and it's almost like there's this little voice screaming inside me saying, don't say that! And I say it anyway. It's because I'm not exercising self-control. The Holy Spirit wants, wants to bring that about. Resist the temptation of sin and then fearlessly preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. We think, so many of us are so mistaken, we think we can entertain sin in our life and and strongly preach the gospel. No, one overtakes the other. Why did Peter say, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul? It's because it weakens us and we need to resist temptation and then we are able to fearlessly preach the gospel truth. Read Romans 6 later on today. You'll see what I'm talking about. And the last thing is this. You gotta just dependently trust God for for changed hearts. We can't change anybody's heart. Paul preached it. Dionysius became a believer, but he didn't get saved by Paul. He got saved by Jesus. Eusebius, in his his history, wrote this, that Dionysius the Areopagite became the first bishop of Athens. That's praiseworthy. You can praise God for that. He became a leader, the first leader of that church. In Athens. Praise God. Look, you got the, the dawn of a new year. What a great time for a, a, a restart or a new start. If you're not a believer, become a believer today. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and, and believe that he died for your sins and that he rose from the dead and he's coming back. And you could have a new life today on the brink of a new year. And if you're a Christian and you want to go deeper in Christ and God's word and prayer and Christ centered relationships, and, and more strenuously say no to sin and temptation and you want to preach the gospel fearlessly, we'll start the new year off and, and make some really good choices. Resolve to do that. To, to relentlessly pursue a growing relationship with Jesus. 
and others and, and, and resist the temptation of sin and preach the gospel because the only way you can do that is by dependently trusting God to change your heart. Lord God, thank you that you are the changer of hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you want to turn our provoked spirits that are wanting to lash out in anger. You want us to be provoked for the right reasons, for a righteous result. Lord, we are by your mercy believing what we cannot see, but we, we absolutely believe it because you have changed our hearts. And we know that a lot of people deny God based on theories that are just riddled with errors. But we thank you, Lord God Almighty, that you patiently saved by grace through faith in Christ and you lovingly transform lives by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord God, in Christ's name. Amen.